What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. You can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook. So today and this week, we got a lot of... A lot of stuff for you guys. Really looking forward to uh, this week. We have plenty of uh, Boston sports to get to uh, today. There is plenty of uh, excitement for Boston sports this week. Um, so really excited to get into all that. It was really a successful weekend for a bunch of the local teams. So looking forward to getting into that. Today also is... Uh, the Boston Marathon that is going on as we are recording today. I'm really excited to um, say that we will have a uh, marathon-themed guest this week. We'll get into that announcement later in the podcast, but looking forward to that later this week on Guest Friday. So without further ado, let's just get into it, get into uh, the exciting weekend of Boston sports that uh we all just witnessed, uh, capped off by a tremendous win for the Celtics um, in Game 1 against the Nets yesterday afternoon. Obviously, a lot of thoughts from this game. I think just from a you know, fan perspective, from the play on the floor to you know, comments after the game, it just is like, you know, for, for anyone that was thinking that this series was going to be easy, I don't know if anyone thought this series was going to be easy, but, you know, uh, there is no indication that this series is going to be uh, an easy series for either team with the way that that game ended last night. You know, the Celtics, fortunately, were able to be the beneficiary of, you know, getting getting the ball on that last possession um, and making the right plays um, for, you know, getting Tatum in the right position to you know, laid up at the buzzer. It just really was a wild last, you know, minute 30 seconds, whatever you want to say, the Celtics with uh, some great defensive stops and then, you know, Tatum's buzzer beater. And I think, and everyone will talk about the the play, you know, at the end of the game, you know, with uh, the Marcus Smart, you know, choosing not to, you know, throw up a three-pointer with, with two guys, you know, looking to block the shot, but, you know, the pump fake, the find for Tatum and the layup, um, you know, tremendous offensive play there, but the Celtics played great defense on that last possession as well, you know, not letting the Nets get a quality shot off. So I think just the way the Celtics were able to finish that game, um, it was pretty impressive because I think that you have seen time and time again with this group, with you know, the last year plus, I think prior to prior to this turnaround, you've seen the Celtics lose games like that and, you know, either not come up with a stop or, you know, make a bad decision on a late game possession, whether it's Jalen Brown maybe forcing a jump shot at the end of regulation there, whether it was Marcus Smart, you know, forcing a, a three with two defenders, you know, coming at him good chance that that would have been blocked. But I think it just goes to show you that this turnaround really is real. And I think that you have players like Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown who are buying into what this team 
is is all about and what this team is about is sacrifice and making plays for other guys and I think you really saw that on display in the last possession and yeah I think there were some people that were concerned about the Celtics not calling a timeout on that last play but I think you know it's the coach trusting in his players and the players trusting in each other too you know Jason Tatum trusting Marcus Smart that he was going to make the right play that he's not going to force up a three-pointer he's going to pump fake and he's going to find him streaking to the basket. So it just kind of goes to show you that, you know, this team is making huge strides in the way that they are playing and the way that they approach, you know, last minute, last minute plays, you know, and I think, you know, the trust in the players to make the right play and, you know, it's, you know, such, it's such a tough, tough thing, you know, at the end of games, because on one hand, you may want to call a timeout, draw up a good play, but on the other hand, you have a team that, like the Nets or whoever that you're playing, you know, is forced to to be scrambling and trying to, you know, find the right guy to cover um, and not having a timeout where you can, you know, run through plays and run through scenarios that you're just kind of playing it out on the floor and you force the defending team to try to stop you, essentially. And the Celtics did a great job moving the ball side to side and then getting a great look for Tatum to, to win the game. So a tremendous win for the Celtics uh, last night or yesterday, whatever you want to say. Um, but clearly this series is far from over. Um, I think based on the way that this game finished in the fourth quarter, you know, Brooklyn coming back from a 15-point deficit to take the lead, you know, late in the game, it kind of had a feeling of, you know, uh, oh, here we go again, the Celtics blowing, you know, late lead. But I think that, you know, yes, it's fair to be concerned about how the game ended, but I also think this series is going to be like this, that no no lead is going to be safe. You know, the Celtics did jump ahead by 11 points um, at the end of the third, but I didn't really feel comfortable. And I don't really think that this is a series that you should feel comfortable with a lead like that in the third quarter because you saw what the Nets did. You saw what Kyrie did. You saw the way that they were able to battle back in the game. You know, Kyrie, 39 points, 19 in the fourth quarter, and I think 18 or 19 in the fourth quarter, whatever it was. But I think you have to expect that this series is going to be like this, that I think the Celtics have to stay focused and stay motivated throughout the whole 48 minutes because you let your foot off the gas for a couple minutes and the Nets are right back in it. So I think they have to do a better job of being able to play with the same aggressiveness throughout the game. Um, and that means taking good shots. That means, you know, having an offense, offensive possessions where you move the ball, you know, not have a possession where one guy's holding it and takes a contested shot. You know, I think this is a series that the Celtics really, really need contributions from the bench because your starters are not going to be able to play the whole game. You know, Tatum and Brown played 40 minutes last yesterday, but you're going to need to have guys off the bench who can do things effectively. And I thought Derek White had a solid game, but Grant Williams, you know, missed all four of his threes. Uh, Pritchard only played eight minutes, which I think you know, might just be a matchup thing. It might just be the Celtics feeling out the nets and trying to figure out, okay, 
where is where are the best minutes going to be for Peyton? And I think, yes, he should be utilized in the series, but I think this is a series where, you know, you have to keep your foot on the gas when you have a lead. You cannot, you know, kind of revert back to just playing playing the lead. You know, you have to play the game and not the lead. So I think that's kind of a, a takeaway of sorts um, that I think the bench needs to play better. Um, Al Horford was amazing in this game. You know, he has turned back the clock this season and has played at a almost an elite level. You know, 20 and 15 yesterday, I think the Celtics have a pretty big decided advantage, you know, with their bigs versus Brooklyn's bigs. You know, you look at you look at Drummond and you look at the game that he played, you know, played 17 minutes, eight points. You know, the Celtics took advantage of him defensively, and it just is like that's an area where I think not a lot of people, including myself, you know, are thinking about, oh, that matchup could be huge. But it's like if Horford, you know, dominates that matchup and plays anywhere near like he did in game one, the Celtics could run away with this series because I think Drummond's a guy where the Nets really cannot afford to have him playing heavy minutes in this series. You know, Claxton, I think, is someone that fits better in terms of what they try to do offensively. But, you know, you can take advantage of him. He's not a good free throw shooter. And I think, you know, he's a young player. He's an exceptional defender, you know, and I think he makes a huge difference for the Nets defensively at the rim. So it's going to be curious to see what they do. But I think, you know, great games from Horford, but outstanding game from Smart, you know, six assists, had four threes. You know, Jalen Brown took a little bit to get going, kind of was the same thing for Tatum. Um, but he did have six or seven assists in the first quarter. So, you know, he was getting involved offensively, and then he kind of took over in that third quarter, was a little quiet in the fourth, but obviously came up big, you know, when it mattered. So very excited with the Celtics winning this first game. Um, but I think you saw the team struggle a bit in the first half offensively. And I think, you know, the days off definitely had something to do with it, with the Celtics not really they really just weren't in a rhythm offensively, you know, 36% from three, which isn't bad, but you look at how the Nets shot, you know, they shot 46%. They were almost 50%. So I think three-point shooting, that's an area that the Celtics want to be better at and want to have an advantage or want to shoot at least a similar percentage as the Nets. So I think it's might be a matter of just making open shots and, because they think the Celtics did get some good looks. Like, I think, you know, Williams got some good looks, missed all four of his threes. I don't believe that that's going to happen again in this series. You know, I think he's good for at least one made three-pointer game. So it was a good offensive game, but I'm curious to see what the bench can do the rest of the series. And that kind of plays into the next thing that I was going to talk about in terms of, you know, what to expect for the next few games. And I think the bench play is going to be huge. You know, Grant Williams is going to need to knock down those threes. Uh, Derek White, I think, did a good job. While some of his shots weren't falling, he found other ways to get involved. Four assists, three steals, and three rebounds. So I think you want the bench to be a little bit more effective. You know, I think this is difficult to expect, but I think they might need a little bit more offensively from Tice. You know, he only shot one for six. Um, did have six rebounds, but only had four points was one of six from the field. So they might need a little bit more offensively from him. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that the Celtics need to continue to drive the basketball and kind of make plays under the basket for some of their bigs. So, you know, I think going to be curious to see how the Celtics use Pritchard the rest of the series. Um, it was interesting that, you know, Grant Williams, Derek White are guys that they're going to use heavily off the bench. Um, how do the foul, how does the foul game work? You know, obviously you had a lot of fouls called in yesterday's game. So I'm curious to see how that plays the rest of the series, how the series is officiated. You know, I think that, yes, it's frustrating that there are a lot of fouls called, but I also thought that it was, you know, playoff basketball. A lot of the fouls were fouls, you know, it wasn't like the referees are making bad calls left and right. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how both teams approach that. Um, you know, curious to see what the Nets do. You know, does Claxton get more minutes? Does he start? Um, you know, what ends up happening with Ben Simmons? I think there are reports that he could potentially return toward the end of the series. Um, and obviously, you know, that makes a big difference for what the Nets can do defensively. Um, but I think for the Celtics, it's trying to get into an offensive rhythm earlier in the game. And I think hopefully with the six days off and playing this game yesterday, it helps. It doesn't exactly help that they don't play game two till Wednesday, so they have an extra day off. But, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But this series is going to be a dogfight. You know, this is not going to be the only game um, that goes down to the wire. This is not going to be the only game that ends with, you know, a last-second shot, whether it's a, a game winner or if it's someone has a chance to win and they miss. You know, this is not going to be... This is not going to be a series where this is the only game that goes down to the wire. I firmly expect that a lot of these games are going to go down to the final few minutes. And I think, you know, sure, the Celtics have had their issues late in games, but the way that they handled the late game situation yesterday, I think it's really encouraging um, that they were able to get the win, kind of withstand the biggest shot from Kyrie that I think we're going to see in this series. You know, I really... And maybe this is crazy to say, but I don't really think Kyrie can play any better than he did in game one. You know, the Celtics were able to come away with a win. Make no mistake, Kevin Durant, this is not going to happen throughout the series. The Celtics did a great job kind of virtually taking him out of the game. He did miss some shots. Obviously, he made some shots in the second half, but the Celtics and how they defended him, you know, that's something that I think they want to continue to try to do. But at the same time... He is going to make adjustments. He is going to make plays because he's arguably the best player in the league. So he will make adjustments. The Nets will make adjustments. But it's just a tremendous win for the Celtics yesterday just to get off on the right foot and have the advantage of you know winning game one and having the chance to go up 2-0. So uh, game two at the Garden is Wednesday night, I believe, 730 is the start time for game two. So those of you missing the uh, Mike and Scal broadcast, they will be broadcasting the entire series, I think, except for the game yesterday. So obviously, as I mentioned, there was a lot that happened um, on the court yesterday, and there were things that happened on the court and then things that were said after the game that, you know, are... Interesting, not exactly surprising, but it's something that I think uh, 
fortunately or unfortunately, is going to be the story throughout the series. Um, with Kyrie returning to the Garden, playing the Celtics, and, you know, Derek and I talked about this, that, you know, this is going to be a storyline that is going to be really kind of, is going to kind of make headlines. You know, I think the Celtics hope that this is something that makes headlines and doesn't decide the series, that the Celtics will, the Celtics will decide how the series goes. They will set the headlines, you know, not what is or isn't said or is and isn't done by fans or Kyrie Irving. Um, so obviously there were comments after the game that, you know, Kyrie was making it clear that uh, he's going to have the same energy for the fans that they have for him. And, you know, obviously if you watched the game last night, if you were at the game, booed every time he touched it, you know, Kyrie sucks chance, uh, all types of things that he has uh, said the fans have said and, you know, doesn't surprise me. It's not something that uh, is going to surprise many people, including him. Um, but I don't know. I think that there is, and the way that he has gone about, you know, leaving the Celtics organization, choosing not to resign, and some of his actions, some of the things that he said, you know, it just is, it's one of those things that it just is like, there, there there's two sides to this. And I think, Sure. You know, Celtics fans are a, a, a fan base that they don't forget things. And I think it's not very easy for them to move on from certain things, um, particularly if certain players, you know, make statements that lead fans to believe that, you know, that they those players will be around for a long time. You know, when you make a statement about, you know, your father playing in Boston, and you wanting to see the same number that he wore, you know, raised up in the rafters. When you say things like that and you make statements publicly in front of thousands of people that you intend to resign the franchise and you back out and you back out in a way that was, you know, probably the worst possible way, you know, when you essentially quit on the team in a playoff series and you know, chose to run off to Brooklyn. And it just is like, you when, you when you say and you behave in certain ways, you cannot be surprised when fans say and do things that, you know, are going to upset you. And maybe that's not the case. You know, I think it's clear that Kyrie doesn't really care. But at the same time, if you're going to make statements months ago about how the Boston fans are like a scorned girlfriend you're not exactly helping your cause by flipping off the fans. You know, you're kind of adding fuel to that. And I think like, sure, he understands that I think he's adding fuel to it. And I think that whether he wants to admit it or not, I think he likes it that way. And that's fine. You know, I think that whether he's going to admit it or not, it absolutely plays into the motivation of trying to, you know, do the best that you can. But it's like, hey, he's not the only player that's, you know, used... The Boston crowd is motivation. I mean, we've all seen what LeBron James has done multiple times, you know, with this crowd. And I think whether fans should continue to boo him, you know, it's pretty impossible to say, oh, you should or shouldn't, because whatever certain fans, certain people are going to behave however they want or how I shouldn't say it like that, but like they're going to behave the way that they're going to behave. And there's really not anything that you can do. Um, but I think, 
I don't know. I think part of me is kind of sick of Kyrie kind of just saying saying all the things that he's going to say. And, you know, I think at a certain point, like, sure, you know, he has said that he wants the Celtics fans to move on. That's going to be impossible for some fans. But at the same time, you can't say that fans should move on and then you start making gestures toward the crowd, you know. And I think at a certain point, like, you're a professional athlete, you're an adult, and, you know, you should be able to handle that type of stuff. And sure, if you want to talk about it after the game, that's fine. You know, if, if reporters press you for having to answer questions about that, you can answer the questions, that's fine. But I think, you know, I think it, it's it's difficult because I think on this podcast, I've always been a person that is always kind of wanting to be on the athlete's side when, you know, fans say or do things that cross the line and we need to treat professional athletes with respect. But at the same time, there are people that are going to be fans that are, you know, not going to take that route and they're going to shout things, you know, shout a lot of the things that Kyrie referenced in the post-game press conference. But, you know, I think at a certain point, you have to be able to handle it and you kind of shouldn't be letting that affect you in the sense that, like, you're going to start making gestures back to the crowd. You know, I don't know. And maybe this is difficult. Maybe this is touchy because me as a Celtics fan, I am incredibly biased talking about this. And I will gladly admit that. But I think when you consider some of the things that he has said and the way that he has acted, you can't be surprised that there are fans that, will not be able to move on. And I think he has to understand, and he probably does, that this is going to follow him the rest of his career. However long he plays, whenever he comes to Boston, fans are not going to forget, you know. They are not going to forget that a certain player, you know, said he was going to re-sign, you know, and then changed, changed his mind months later, gave up in a playoff series. You know, the, the stomping on the logo thing really doesn't matter that much to me. I mean, maybe it does to other fans, but I think, like, if there are certain Nets reporters that are acting like Celtics fans are upset because of that, then I think that's not true. I think that's just legitimately false, and I think you are trying to make a false headline that fans are upset about stepping on a logo. It's like, no, that's... That, that's a small part of it, but I think, like, you have to understand that, you know, when you say things publicly, people are not going to forget that. You know, Kyrie can say all that he wants about, oh, you should move on, you know, it's three years ago, but it's like, fans don't forget something like that. You know, it would be different if, you know, it'd probably be slightly different if he said something to that effect in interviews, you know, if he alluded to the fact of, saying, oh, I might think about return or I intend to return. It's a whole different thing when you go up in front of the garden crowd and you say that you intend to resign and then you don't, you know, and you give up on the team in the process. And I just think, look, it's going to be what it's going to be whenever he comes back to the garden. But I just think at a certain point, I just kind of get tired of the things that he's saying because, as usual, he's never wrong. You know, it's always other people that are at fault for him and are, are at fault for 
saying whatever they say because it's like Kyrie has forced his way out of two teams. And I think, you know, I don't know. It just, maybe I'm talking too much about this. Maybe we should just move on because I think that's kind of how I feel that I just kind of want to move on from it. But it's like, it's pretty hard to move on when you add fuel to the fire. So that's really all I'm going to say for that. Um, Moving on, we're going to talk about Marcus Smart, who officially is a finalist for Defensive Player of the Year. So tremendous accomplishment for Marcus, but obviously I think he would like to win. I think there's a very good chance that he will win. Uh, Rudy Gobert and Mikhail Bridges from the Suns were also nominated. So very exciting time for Marcus. You know, I think this he was part of great Celtics defense on Kevin Durant for the majority of that game yesterday. You know, doing a great job getting their hands in, getting some steals. They're going to need to play like that a lot in this series if they're going to hope to, you know, contain him or take him out of a game or two. You're not going to be able to do that for the whole series. You know, he's going to put up 40 or 50 points in a game or two or three in this series. So I think you have to be ready for that. So, um, but again, tremendous opportunity uh, for Marcus and a great accomplishment. Hopefully uh, he can win that award. And it's exciting because I like how the NBA does these awards that they you know, give them out throughout the playoffs. So there can be an opportunity for a ceremony. So if Marcus is able to win, it certainly would be make would make for a fun ceremony before a playoff home game. So and congratulations to Marcus on being the finalist. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that he can be the first guard uh, since Gary Payton to win defensive player of the year. Or first guard to win it since since Gary Payton won in the nineties. So I think that is going to do it for the Celtics. Obviously, we'll keep you updated throughout the playoffs. We'll have an update on the NBA playoffs later um, in today's podcast. But for now, we're going to move on to the Bruins and talk about their uh, huge win over the Penguins um, on Saturday afternoon at the Garden. Bruins obviously had fallen uh, or had lost or dropped their last three games, the first three-game losing streak that they've had in a couple of years, believe it or not. So, you know, I think that this is a group that is at kind of a really tricky point uh, because I think in some of those games they were losing or they, you know, were seemingly losing guys every single game that guys were getting hurt. You know, you lose Grizzlick, you lose Carlo in that game um, against Washington, or, or now Carlo played the entirety of that game, but then missed uh, the St. Louis game. Grizzlick did as well. Um, and then Carlo missed Thursday's game against the Senators. Grizzlick returned in that game. Um, and then Olmark obviously takes a shot off the mask in that Senators game, has to leave, um, and, you know, puts the net in Jeremy Swayman's hands. And, you know, this was a game Saturday that, it really, it forced Jeremy to uh, play a big game and come up with some big saves because, you know, <laughs> losing arguably your top goaltender at the moment, you know, was really not a good thing. And then to add insult to injury, here you go, bringing in Jeremy Swayman, who struggled 
in the last couple weeks. You know, you bring him in in that Ottawa game, you know, gives up a goal less than a minute into, you know, his relief duty at the beginning of the second period. So, you know, that was a game that just kind of got out of hand for the Bruins. And um, Saturday, it really kind of forced the Bruins' hand that, okay, you know, we have to go to Swayman. There's really no other options. And, you know, credit, credit to him for performing as well as he did on Saturday. And I think, you know, I think he has now had the realization that, okay, I need to step up. There's really no other options, you know, other than him to play at the level that we've been familiar to see him play at uh, for the majority of the last two seasons. And it was a great response game from him. I think a great response game uh, from the Bruins, especially from a defensive standpoint. Um, It was great to see, you know, Carlo back in the lineup after missing a couple games, you know, Carlo and Grizzlick. Uh, back together, although Grizzlick did play a majority of the game with Charlie McAvoy. So good to see those two guys back in the lineup. And I think the Bruins can hopefully return to some type of uh, normalcy with the defensive group. And I think that is only going to be a positive thing because I think you know, the Bruins, with how, how many injuries they've had over the last few weeks, it's going to be important to have them get some type of stability somewhere in the lineup, you know, whether that's Carlo and Grizzly coming back, whether that's Lindholm coming back or Pasternak coming back, I think to have clarity for one of those things, I think was important. And I think now the Bruins can kind of get back to normal defensive pairings and not having to play Josh Brown 20 minutes a game, which they almost did a couple games ago as he was, uh, you know, slotted into play because Carlo is not available and you know, they really had no other options. So I think it's good to see that both of those guys were back. Great to see that Swayman rebounded the way that he did and played at a really high level in a kind of playoff atmosphere type of game. You know, that was a game that was low scoring. Bruins got off on the right foot. Frederick and Halla getting a couple goals. You know, I think that was huge to see Frederick bounce back after he was benched uh, for that Ottawa game. Became right back, made an impact right from the start. And I think, you know, he's one of those guys that really needs to be focused and playing at that high level. You know, if the Bruins are really going to make noise in the playoffs, you know, he's had a tremendous year this year. I think this is really the first time that the Bruins have given him an opportunity to prove what he has throughout the course of a season. You know, he's played 50, 51, 52 games, put up 16 points, which I think is what you kind of should expect for him you know, the rest of his career as being someone that can be a, you know, driving force on a line, you know, not be the number one guy is kind of usually the center is the person that drives the play. But I think he is a person that I think could be huge for the Bruins if they're going to make a big postseason run. And he has to stay focused. He has to, you know, have that maturity where he doesn't take stupid penalties and you know, I'll be honest, I think that the Bruins do need an element of a pest, you know, kind of in that bottom six, but I think he has to be smart and be able to kind of toe the line between, you know, getting in the opposing team's head, but also not going overboard to the point that you hurt the team, which is kind of what happened Tuesday night when the Bruins lost to the Blues, that, you know, Frederick kind of lost his head, took an extra two, and it led to the Blues grabbing momentum and then ultimately winning the game. So 
good to see Frederick get back in the lineup, make an impact, and, you know, a good win for the Bruins and a good win against a good team. You know, I think that the that is a team that you could play in the playoffs, and it certainly looks like it could be trending that way based on the Eastern Conference standings, which we'll take a look at later. Um, but I think if the Bruins do match up potentially against the Rangers or the Carolina Hurricanes, the Bruins, you know, would be placed in that Metro bracket and would have to play, you know, those teams, whether it's the Rangers, Pittsburgh, or Carolina. Uh, so a big win for the Bruins Saturday, great performance by Swayman. Um, so I think, you know, we'll look ahead at the schedule in a little bit, but I think one of the players that have been very pleasantly surprised um, is Mark McLaughlin, who uh, is better known as, to his teammates as McLovin, a reference to the uh, character from, from Superbad. A lot of you might remember uh, that movie. So he has had a great impact um, since coming to the Bruins. I believe has scored three goals already in his first couple games um, and has really made a great impact on the Bruins in terms of what he's given to that bottom six, but also what he's given to some other places in the lineup where he has played. I think he's had some games um, on the second line with Hall and Hall. He was previously centering the uh, fourth line in the last two games, has three goals in seven games, um, and I think really is buying into the way the Bruins play hockey. And I think being a responsible defensive player, but also knowing when to take chances in the offensive zone. And I think that he has helped kind of elevate that fourth line. And I think that, yes, that does include Nick Foligno. And I know that, you know, he's someone that I think has drawn the ire of a lot of Bruins fans this season for his, you know, lack of production. But I'll just be honest, he's not someone that I look at as you know, being a productive player, you know, you have him playing on the fourth line or third line, you really can't expect him to be putting up, you know, 20 or 25 points. Like, he's not the player that he was three or four years ago. Like, I just, I don't know. And I think, sure, is the contract that he signed not really a great contract? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was the Bruins, I probably would have signed him to a one-year deal as opposed to two. You know, giving him $3.8 million I think is a little high. Um, but I think that he's been a solid player as of late. You know, I think that he gives the Bruins kind of exactly what you would expect from a player like that, from, you know, his leadership. But I also think he's been finding his game in the last few weeks. And I think, you know, he and Lazar, McLaughlin, Nosek, the four of them, I think, have been playing at a pretty fairly solid level. And I think that, you know, they're a group that I think if they're playing as well as they can, you know, holding the puck in the offensive zone. You know, that's a line that can be very dangerous in a playoff series. Um, but I just think, you know, and as I said on Twitter a couple days ago, I just feel like oftentimes, you know, this is a, a fan base, and I'm not really sure why this happens, but it just always seems like when the team is, is not playing well, there's always people that seem to fixate on the things that, you know, aren't really what's plaguing the team, you know, and it's like the Bruins are struggling. They weren't playing well defensively for the, for, for the last couple games. And certainly they had guys out of the lineup, but you had people complaining about Nick Foligno and the fact that they didn't pick up a, 
mid a bottom six forward at the trade deadline. It's like, like what are, what are we talking about? You know, like if you want to be upset at the team, be upset at the right at the right things. You know, don't be upset at things that have absolutely nothing to do with why they're struggling. You know, it just I don't know what it is. It just seems like it's it's always very easy for certain people to pinpoint the absolute wrong things. So, you know, I don't know. There's not really much I want to say further. But I think, you know, going back to McLaughlin, he's a guy who I think is playing at such a high level, it's hard to take him out of the lineup. And I think the Bruins have to be, I don't want to say careful, but I think, like, they have to define what the role is going to be for him. Is he going to be a consistent part of that bottom six? Or, you know, when Pasternak comes back, is he going to be a guy that's going to be kind of a an extra bottom six forward. The Bruins benched, you know, no sec in the last game, which I thought was really interesting. And that could, you know, mean something that, okay, the Bruins really like what they've seen in McLaughlin. And I think he could be a big part of what they do in the playoffs because certainly he's scoring some goals. He's playing really great, intelligent hockey and playing with a lot of intensity, you know, which is great to see from um, a kid coming in right from college hockey and coming into professional hockey and, you know, playing exactly the way um, that you would, would want a player to come in and play. So um, great stuff from him. You know, one of the other interesting things that I wanted to talk about this week is the defense. And I think naturally with Grizzlick and Carlo coming back, it gives the Bruins a little bit more stability, uh, which is great. You know, I think the Bruins, with the way that they had been playing the last couple of games, it's huge to get guys that get guys back that are going to be part of the playoff lineup night in and night out. And I think fully healthy, Josh Brown's not going to be playing too many games. You know, I think he's only someone that you bring in if you feel like you need to change the tenor of a series. You know, if you want the team to play a little bit more physical, then maybe you bring him in for for a game or two. But I think, you know, that's kind of what his role is going to be, kind of that seventh or eighth defenseman. Another defenseman that I think I'm not really sure how the Bruins are going are gonna to fit into the puzzle is Mike Riley. And I think Certainly, he's been able to play a lot more minutes and a lot more meaningful minutes with Lindholm being out the last couple games. Um, But I think he's one of the players that the Bruins really need to find out the best role for him. And I think, you know, historically, he has played well with Charlie McAvoy, and you have seen that for some of the last few games. Um, And it seems like the two of them seem to play pretty well together. But I think, obviously, when you get Lindholm back, the Bruins would like him to play with McAvoy. And then that becomes, you know, what happens to Riley? You know, I think he's someone that has been pretty adamant that he does want to be in the lineup, and he does want to be an everyday player. But I think once Lindholm comes back, I'm not really sure, you know, what the best place for him is going to be because I think the Bruins would like for him to play you know, that third pair with Derek Forbert. But when the two of them have played, they've not looked very good together and have kind of given up a lot of scoring chances. And so, you know, it kind of becomes frustrating because, you know, Riley's a player that I think at his best can be an asset for the team. But I think 
he plays his best when he plays with McAvoy, but that's not really going to be possible, you know, once Lindholm comes back. And I think, you know, if you look at the third pair, yeah, a lot of people have issues with Tarek Forbert, and he's not been a perfect player this season. He's made plenty of mistakes, but the Bruins use him a lot on the penalty kill. You know, I think he's their top deployed left-handed, you know, shutdown defenseman on the penalty kill, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, if the Bruins want to have him in the lineup, you know, he's, you know, locked in at that left side on the third pair. But then it's like, you know, do you play Clifton? Do you play Riley on his offside? You know, it kind of is, kind of is a, is a conundrum, you know, I think really is the best way to put it. Because I think ideally the Bruins would want Forbert and Riley to play on that third pair. But historically they have not played well together. You know, I think the Bruins would want you know, someone like Forbert who can kill penalties, but someone like Riley, who is a good offensive puck mover and a guy who can take chances in the offensive zone. But when you've seen that combo together, they've not exactly been the best the best duo out there. And I think Clifton, in my opinion, is better suited as an extra defenseman. And so it's like the common denominator is like the Bruins might try Riley and Forbert again, but you know, the results the results recently haven't been very good. And sure, you know, you could toy something with playing Riley with Brandon Carlo, but I think, you know, then that means Grizzly is playing third pair minutes, and I don't really think that's the best use of his ability. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Bruins approach the defense core uh, when Lindholm comes back. Um, I don't really think that there should be any qualms about Lindholm, McAvoy, Grizzlick, and Carlo, you know, I think that needs to be your top four. But then after that, it's like you have three players that, you know, you kind of don't really know what you're going to do with, Forbert Riley and, and Connor Clifton. So that's going to be something to watch for in the last couple of games of the regular season. You know, how do the Bruins approach these games with, you know, those those players? Because at a certain point, you do need Lindholm to come in and play some more games before the playoffs, you know, I'm not really sure where he is in terms of his recovery from, I believe it's a knee issue. Um, and so, you know, obviously he'll need some games to kind of get back up into, uh, get back up to speed, you know, before the playoffs start. So, you know, looking at the Bruins week ahead, it's not something that's going to get any easier. Uh, the Bruins have three games this week, all against playoff opponents or I should say, you know, three games against teams that are going to make the playoffs. Two of these teams that could potentially be playoff opponents for the Bruins um, in the first or second round. Uh, Bruins will travel to St. Louis to play the Blues, a rematch of last week's game. This is an 8 o'clock start tomorrow night. The Bruins will be playing on ESPN Plus and Hulu, so unfortunately this is not a game that you are going to be able to watch on TV, so you got to have one of those streaming services, and I know that that um, is an issue that, that has come up before, you know, most recently, and this is kind of ironic, the last time the Bruins had a game like this, uh, they hosted the Capitals, and I was uh, fortunate enough to go to the game, so I didn't have any issues with watching the game. So, you know, obviously, if you have an ESPN Plus account, or if you have, you know, Hulu with live TV, I'm pretty sure you were able to watch this game. Um, you know, it's kind of unfortunate for some people because I think this is kind of the the way of the future if you will that I think the NHL is playing around with games that you know are only available to streaming service people 
This is only the third game, I believe, this season that they've done this. I don't believe that the Bruins have any more of these games. Um, but you have seen plenty of games this year that have been, you know, streaming exclusive games. You know, I think that the NFL is playing around with this for next season, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that, you know, Amazon will be doing the Thursday night games, so that actually will be a new thing for the NFL next season. So um, a little unfortunate about this game, but obviously if you're able to watch, this will be a good game. Bruins then will travel to Pittsburgh on a Thursday night at 7 o'clock to play the Penguins, a rematch. And then the Bruins will host the Rangers on Saturday afternoon. Um, and then they also have a game Sunday night against the Canadians. So the Bruins will make their final trip up to Montreal before the season is over. So the Bruins have seven games left on the schedule. So I think that will probably do it for the Bruins. We will return to talk about um, the NHL standings uh, later in the podcast. So I'll take a look at where the Bruins are right now. So speaking of right now, the Red Sox are currently playing against the Minnesota Twins in the uh, 11 o'clock start because of the marathon. Red Sox are currently trailing in the eighth inning, 4-2 against the Twins. So the Red Sox, after a 1-3 start, Red Sox actually lost the last time we were uh, talking on this podcast in Detroit. Um, the Red Sox have quietly won four out of five, and um, it seems like the team is back back into it a little bit of a rhythm. Um, I think the uh, some of the starting pitchers have started off pretty well, um, or have pitched well recently, I should say. Uh, Tanner Houck getting the win Saturday afternoon, and then uh, Michael Waka pitching very well yesterday. Um, unfortunately, did not get the win. The Red Sox beat the Twins eight to one. Four to nothing on Saturday was the score. So a good sign for both of those guys um, to be pitching at a decent clip to start the year. You know, Evaldi pitched pretty well in that game Wednesday afternoon in, in Detroit. Um, that game kind of got out of hand thanks to the bullpen. But Evaldi pitched pretty well in that game. You know, I think that uh, Pavetta has ran into some struggles. Um, he's 0-2 after his first two starts this year. Uh, but I think... If you can get Hauk and Waka to, you know, pitch at a pretty decent clip, you know, that is going to really work wonders for your rotation, you know, kind of hold it up until Chris Sale can come back, which, you know, probably won't be until June. Um, but I think the biggest thing for those two guys is just to continue to get out, you know, and not be erratic. You know, Hauk is someone that I think you have concerns with. Is he someone that kind of has has had a high walk rate in the past. Um, but when he's pitching the way that he pitched Saturday, you know, he gives the Red Sox a, a great pitcher that I think, or a potential great pitcher that can go along with, you know, the consistent guys. When you talk about Evaldi and, and Waka, Pavetta, you know, I think we're hoping he can pick it up. He's had some, some issues in his first two starts, but I think, you know, he's someone that can right the ship. Um, you know, I think really for the Red Sox, the starters just got to get into a rhythm, you know, getting into a rhythm, going deep into games and, you know, just allowing the rotation to be stable until, until, until Sale can come back. And I think, you know, giving the Red Sox a good one-two punch of Sale and Valdi takes a lot of pressure off of the other guys, but it's at least a good sign that, you know, you saw good performances from Hauk 
and from Waka yesterday. Uh, Rich Hill, I think, has ran into some issues today. But I think, you know, he's someone that I think can give you some innings. You know, I think they expect to use Whitlock out of the bullpen when he pitches. So, you know, that will be curious to see when Sale comes back. How do they approach that back end of the bullpen? You know, does Hill remain in the rotation? Do they then use him maybe as a long reliever? You know, I think that probably would be the best course of action for this team. But obviously, we'll see, and it'll be a while until uh, Sale comes back. But the other thing, um, the offense is kind of return to normalcy a little bit. They've gotten some extra base hits. They've done a great job of timely hits, especially in the last couple of games, you know, four out of five against two against Detroit, two against Minnesota. Um, some big hits of Verdugo and Devers have been outstanding. Um, those have been two guys that have kind of carried the team offensively uh, for the first couple of games. Uh, Devers is already hitting 368. And then you have Verdugo that has three home runs already this season. Um, you know, quiet starts for Kike Hernandez and J.D. Martinez, but I think Martinez has started get started to get back into a groove. So has Bogarts. Um, he's hit really well this weekend. Um, Trevor Story has broken through with a couple of hits. You know, he has struggled out of the gate, and I think that's something that I think it's not surprising. You know, just considering all the things that he went through in, in spring training, you know, late signing. I think he had something like 11 at-bats in spring training, you know, had had uh, the birth of a child. You know, it just, I think, has been a tough adjustment for him, just considering all those things. Um, you know, switching teams, obviously, not getting a lot of at-bats in spring training. You know, I think having a lot of, you know, kind of added stress you know, which it's, you know, probably exciting stress, you know, welcoming the birth of a child. But I think it's something that I think is challenging for a professional athlete and someone like Story, who I think came in as a you know high-priced free agent. People are expecting a lot of big things from him. Um, but I think you give him some time. And I think by the end of the month, he'll be back into a rhythm because I think the Red Sox kind of need it. Um, but I think you have players like Devers and Verdugo that have kind of been able to to pick up the slack, which has been good to see. Another player, you know, Jackie Bradley, you know, as I said at the beginning of the season, kind of whatever he gives you offensively is going to be a plus, but I think he's come through with some key hits at key times, you know, only hitting 217, but does have four RBIs. Um, so I think he's someone that I think you can't expect a lot from offensively. But I think if he gives you some timely hits, which he's been doing, you know, he is going to be a big piece of kind of the bottom of the order. You know, and that's someone that's a, an area that includes Vasquez and does include Bobby Dahlbeck, who's had a hard time opening up the season. You know, hopefully that he can hopefully he can kind of keep the strikeout rate down um, and be able to get on base. But I think, you know. It's going to be what it's going to be with him. You know, he's someone that I think is probably never going to be an elite offensive player. You know, I think we'll go through stretches where he struggles. We'll go through stretches where he's hot, you know, like he did last year. But I think the biggest thing for Bobby, I think, is to be consistent and be a consistent bat. Someone that can get the extra base hits, that can hit home runs and, you know, take the pressure off of some of their top guys. Now, their top guys are probably going to perform 
regardless. You know, Devers is probably going to play at this high level the majority of the season. You know, I think it's great to see that Verdugo is out of the gate and hitting well uh, is a really good sign for him. Um, because I think if you're not getting consistent offense from the bottom of the order, you know, he's someone that can also relieve some of the other big bats um, of the Red Sox offense. So good to see from the offensive perspective that the Red Sox are kind of getting back into uh, the swing of things, no pun intended. Um, but it's going to be a challenging uh, first month for the Red Sox. Um, a lot of a lot of AL East opponents in the first month, you know, really Minnesota is the only series, is the only team that they're playing, or Minnesota and Detroit, I should say, are the only teams that they're playing this month that are non-AL East opponents. The Red Sox will have a stretch of, I believe, 17 games in a row. So no off days in that stretch, but they're playing Toronto twice, Tampa Bay and Baltimore. So, you know, it's going to be an important... It's going to be an important stretch because they think the Red Sox really have to get off to a good start against their own division because they think a lot of these series, a lot of these series are going to matter, you know, when it comes down to maybe tiebreakers and things like that, because it's like, you look at Tampa Bay, you look at the Yankees, you look at Toronto, the Red Sox are going to be battling with all three of those teams for the majority of the season. So you know, getting off to a good start against these teams is going to be huge. And I think, you know, getting wins early on is going to be huge. Um, and the no off days is going to be tough, but I think it could work as a positive that the Red Sox are, you know, going to be forced to play at kind of a high level to open the year that, you know, they're not really going to be able to ease into it. They're kind of going to have to remain focused um, and perform against some of these elite teams like Toronto and the Yankees in Tampa Bay. You know, maybe one of these teams underperforms this year, but I think, you know, the Red Sox are going to be in a dogfight the entire year. And um, this kind of brings up another thing that is not not exactly settling. It's pretty unsettling, um, honestly, that the Red Sox have a bunch of players that are um, currently unvaccinated. And I think, yeah, it's a problem because they can't go to Toronto. And you know, Tanner Howick, I think, is one of those players. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, he has a start scheduled against Toronto um, early next week when they travel up north. Um, and, yeah, it's a problem. You know, I think that when you talk about a team like the Red Sox, I think without Chris Sale, they're fairly thin in terms of pitching. And I think if you are, you know, taking yourself out of these games you're kind of putting your team in a pretty bad situation. And I think a lot of these players that aren't vaccinated kind of have to understand that you're hurting the team. And I think you can say whatever you want. Now, I think I want to try to be careful here because I think, yes, technically you're talking about a personal choice for these guys choosing not to get vaccinated. And I understand that, you know, but I think at the same time, it's not a personal choice because it affects your team. You know, your actions, you know, I don't want to say that it's a negative, like, oh, you're doing, you know, you're doing something negative, but it's like you're negatively affecting the team by not being available and, you know, not giving the team your ability to play or to pitch in this situation. And so it just is, 
it's kind of frustrating because you look at the Toronto Blue Jays, this is a team that's really good. And they're going to be really good the rest of the year. And it's just like, if you're really just going to say that I don't want to be available to play against one of the best teams that we're going to be battling the entire season, you know, it puts you in a bad position. The Red Sox could be in a position where they're without a lot of key players in key games. And I think, you know, we talk about tiebreakers. The Red Sox, you know, don't have a tiebreaker over Toronto. They can't, they probably won't finish ahead of them. You know, obviously it's, uh, it's probably an unlike. It's probably unlikely that they end up tied with them, but I think, you know, you have to understand that you know your decision does have pretty far-reaching implications. So, it just is frustrating that you know you're going to have to deal with that. And I think, you know, Hauk I think is the only confirmed guy at the moment, but it just is really frustrating that you know we're still going to have this conversation, and you know. You want to have your best guys available against the best teams. And it just, it kind of blows my mind that guys will kind of think that a personal choice is more important than your, you know, contributions to the team. That just is kind of a wild, a wild thing to me. But hey, you know, if players feel like they can justify it, that's fine, I guess. But I just will say that I'm not a fan of it. And, to be perfectly honest, and I'll be blunt here, I don't really respect it. Um, so that's really all I'm going to say on that. But, you know, it's going to affect the team, and it might affect them in a negative way. And I guess that the team is just going to have to deal with it. So uh, the Red Sox will host the Blue Jays for three games this week, starting tomorrow night. And then the Red Sox will play a weekend series in Tampa Bay against the Rays. First time they have played Tampa since the division series last weekend, Michael Waka will start against his former team on Friday night. So that will be um, interesting to pay attention to. Uh, so both take a look at the start times uh, for this week's games. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Red Sox will start at 7-10. Ivaldi and Pavetta will get the ball for games one and two against Toronto. And then Hauk will start against the Blue Jays Thursday afternoon at 1:35. Friday night, Waka against Kluber at 7-10. Saturday night, Red Sox will play at 6-10 in Tampa. And then Ivaldi will get the ball for the series finale against the Rays at 1-10 Sunday afternoon. So that's where we are with the Red Sox. I think that we will uh, move along and talk a little bit about the Patriots. And yes, there's not a lot of you know big news here, but I did think that it was interesting a couple of different things. Uh, Matt Groh is the Patriots' new director of player personnel, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so he made some comments last week um, about how the Patriots are going to uh, try to evolve and uh, try to evolve and adapt as a team, but to prioritize speed um, everywhere on the rock everywhere on the roster. So, you know, that to me is important because I think it means the Patriots are, you know, trying to adapt to kind of the way that the NFL is going, you know, in terms of prioritizing speed, especially on defense to be able to, you know, kind of withstand some of the fast offenses that, you know, the team is going to have to play this season. So I think 
that's a good sign. You know, I think that they're prioritizing something that I think is going to be huge for the team going forward. You know, I think when you look at certain positions like linebacker and cornerback, the Patriots want to make sure that they have, you know, the athletes that are going to be able to keep up with, you know, the Tyreek Hills of the world that the Patriots are not going to have to face twice a year. Um, so I think that's at least a positive, um, you know, grow as someone that's been in the organization for years, you know, kind of understands how the job works. But I think also, you know, as he said, trying to evolve and trying to adapt um, to the way the NFL is moving. So I think that that is a positive Patriots offseason workouts, I believe, are starting this week. So that will be something uh, to keep your eye on. Uh, I thought that uh, Jabril Peppers made an interesting comment when uh, I think had his introductory press conference last week that here's another player that said that he wanted to play for the Patriots or play for Bill Belichick. And uh, I don't know, that sometimes seems to be a common refrain of certain people in the Boston media that, you know, Bill Belichick is not an attract of top talent that, you know, you don't have Brady anymore. So you don't want, you don't have key players that want to come play. And, you know, that's just flat out false because you've had players in the past that have said that Belichick is the reason why they signed here. Devontae Parker, I think, made it pretty clear that he wanted to be traded to the Patriots and wanted to play for the team. So, you know, whatever. I think that certain people are going to continue to uh, drive certain narratives into the ground to the point that it's impossible to listen to. Um, but it's like you have to know that a lot of those a lot of those things are false, you know, and I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus, but I think that at a certain point, you know, there are certain narratives that I think kind of don't hold up. And I think, you know, people want, players want to play for Bill Belichick. I think that that's kind of obvious. And I think, you know, trying to pretend that you know, Tom Brady is the only reason why the Patriots, you know, brought in star players. You know, it's just a ridiculous, it's just a ridiculous statement. And, you know, if you really want to go into it, oh, is Jabril Peppers, you know, a star player? Maybe not necessarily, but guys want to play for Bill Belichick. And it just is kind of funny to me that we continue to play this game that, you know, uh, Belichick doesn't attract star talent. Belichick hates players on his team. You know, crazy things like that. That It's just like, we're not even talking about football anymore. You know, like, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about anything that's based in reality. We're not talking about anything that affects how the game is played on the field. Um, so, whatever. I could probably do a whole podcast, you know, complaining about stuff like that. But I probably shouldn't go any further. Um, another thought that uh, as the NFL draft is approaching... The Patriots have plenty of options on what to do at 21, where they are positioned in the draft in the first round. Now, I think certainly this is a draft that I think a bunch of positions are very deep. Linebacker, cornerback included, wide receiver probably as well. Um, but I think that this is a draft that you could see the Patriots uh, trading out of the first round. Um, I think just just if there are certain players that don't fall to them at 21, there's a distinct possibility that they trade out of it, try to get more picks like they did 
you know, last year, obviously, they traded up to get someone. Um, but I think you could see them trading back like they did in the first round two years ago um, and then taking Duggar in the first round. So, or in the second round with, with their first pick. Um, so I think definitely there's some strategy that could come into play, you know, whether the Patriots pick someone at 21, whether they don't, you know, if they eye certain players, you know, it's going to be curious to see what they're going to try to do. You know, I think personally, in my opinion, if the Patriots can't grab one of the top cornerbacks or top linebackers at 21, then I think you're better you're better off trading out of the first round because I think you don't want to, I don't want to say waste a first round pick, but I think, you know, the Patriots don't want to draft a receiver in the first round at 21 if they could get similar value in the third round. You know, I think that they want to be smart about how they are investing in their young players. So that's going to be curious to see. The draft is, believe it or not, it's less than two weeks away. So uh, it is coming up pretty quickly. So uh, certainly there will be probably more updates about what the Patriots' plans are as we get closer to the draft. Maybe, maybe not. They're a team that historically and famously keep things pretty close to the chest. So uh, I wouldn't expect anything crazy, but obviously we'll let you know if that changes. Um, another Boston team, or New England team that was in action uh, this weekend, the Revolution, uh, coming back after their disappointing loss in Miami. Uh, the weekend prior, the Revs come back with a 2-1 win over Charlotte on Saturday night. It was good to see the Revs get out on the right foot. You know, Buxa getting a goal. I think he's someone that they really want to get going. Obviously, he had a great year last year. So good to see him get on the scoreboard. Um, the Revs were able to get another goal from Matt Polster in the second half on kind of a, not a deflection, but kind of a, kind of a weird goal. You know, I think it was a play that was stopped by the defender and, you know, Polster comes in with a tackle and puts the ball into the net. So, you know, that was pretty amazing. They're kind of, kind of funny to see. So the Revs get a goal from Polster. Uh, Charlotte did get a goal in the 85th minute, but the Revs were able uh, to hang on for their first win since the season opener. If you can believe that, the Revolution winning just their second game of the season. So, it's huge for the team. You know, I think that they need to do all they can do to, uh, you know, get some momentum going. And I think hopefully, you know, getting Buxa on the scoreboard, getting some solid goaltending from Brad Knight, and I thought that he played excellent um, on Saturday night, I think is going to be huge for the team. I think they really need to, you know, string some wins together, get some consistency going in the attacking half, playing you know, decent enough defensively that they're not giving up a lot of chances like they were against Miami. Um, so I think, you know, getting a win like that is huge. Charlotte's not necessarily a good team, but they did beat the Revolution the last time they played. So, you know, it's a solid win, and hopefully the Revs can kind of keep that momentum going um, with their next game, which is Saturday night against uh, DC United. Revolution will be traveling for this game. So the Revs, you know, thanks to their poor start, we're kind of uh, near the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings. They kind of still are uh, with just seven points, two wins, a draw, and four losses, and a negative three goals differential. So, you know, the Revs, I think, offensively would like to get into more of a rhythm um, and hopefully, 
you know, we can get guys into the lineup consistently. Um, but it was a good sign to see Buxa scoring because I think he's someone that, with Gustavo Bo missing some time, he's going to need to be the person that's going to be kind of the offensive player that everything kind of flows through, um, which I think naturally it's Carlos Heel most of the time. But I think having someone like Buxa is someone who can finish and someone that can finish off some of the passes uh, from Carlos, Brandon By, or, you know, whoever it is. So a good feel-good win for the Revs um, against Charlotte. So hopefully they can keep that going with another win against DC United Saturday, 7.30 start time. Um, so I think that is probably going to do it for our updates on the uh, local teams. Now we're going to kind of get into some other uh, big stories among the other uh, sports that are going on currently. The uh, NBA playoffs will give you a bit of an update on where things stand um, after the first games went on during the weekend. Obviously, Derek and I uh, previewed each of the first round playoff series, took a look at the play-in games for Friday night. Atlanta and the Pelicans were able to come out with wins, so they punched their ticket to the playoffs. So before we take a look at some of N- some NBA awards, we'll take a look at some of the first games um, for each of the series. So the playoffs obviously kicked off Saturday afternoon. Uh, Utah and Dallas, the Jazz took game one. Uh, Luka Doncic obviously is still out with a hamstring or with a calf strain. I uh, don't believe that he is going to be avail- be available for game two, uh, which is tonight. We'll get to the schedule for game two. We'll get to the schedule for tonight in a little bit. Uh, Minnesota winning their first game of the series against the Memphis Grizzlies, which was pretty amazing. Uh, I'll be honest, that was a a team that I did not really see coming, Um, but they played great in that play-in game and a big win against Memphis in game two. You know, they're a team. This is an interesting series because you both have teams that are young, and teams that kind of don't really have a lot of playoff experience. You know, I think D'Angelo Russell might be the most experienced postseason player on the Minnesota, on, on Minnesota, or probably in the whole series. So, you know, this is a series that I think, like, it's hard to pick a winner because I think, obviously, Memphis, or Memphis has been outstanding this year. John Morant's played at a close to an MVP level, but, you know, Minnesota's playing at a high level right now, and I think they're playing with a lot of momentum and kind of with a chip on their shoulder. So this is a series that I think a lot of people would just easily pick Memphis, but I think this could be a series that goes uh, pretty long uh, with the way that D'Angelo Russell, Towns, and, you know, Anthony Russell, or uh, Anthony Edwards, excuse me, how well he's been playing. He's been pretty unbelievable. You know, he's a guy that, you know, came in as the number one pick. I don't think people really had a lot of high expectations for him, but Boy, is he playing at a really high level right now. So big win for the Timberwolves in their game one. Uh, the Sixers had no trouble with the Toronto Raptors in game one, 131-111. This was a game that um, Harden and Embiid didn't exactly play well, but uh, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris were unbelievable. Pretty easy win for the Sixers in game one. Rather easy win for the Warriors in game one against the Nuggets. 123-107, Steph Curry returned, did not start, uh, but played a good amount of time in this game. Jordan Poole was really good for the Warriors in Game 1. And then taking a look at the games yesterday, obviously, 
uh, the Celtics with a big win, uh, but the Heat winning game one against the Hawks, 115-91. Trey Young did not play very well, but I don't expect that that is going to last. I think Atlanta could win a game or two in this series. Uh, the Bucks beating the Bulls, 93-86. Good win for the Bucks beating Chicago, 93-86 game one. So we'll see if the Bucks can continue that the rest of the series. Uh, I was pretty surprised with how well Chicago played. You know, they were a team that I didn't really have a lot of expectations coming into the playoffs, but I think um, a good job for them to keep this game close with the Bucks ultimately coming up with the win, 93-86. Game two is later this week, and then Phoenix beating the Pelicans, 110-99 to in game one. That was a late game last night. The Pelicans uh, came back to make this interesting in the fourth quarter, but uh, Chris Paul took over 19 in the fourth quarter, 30 for the game, and the Suns picked up the win in game one. So the game's tonight. As we take a look, three tonight, uh, Toronto and Philly, game two. believe that Toronto might be without Gary Trent Jr. and another starter, so could be um, already injuries hitting the Raptors. Uh, so game two tonight, 7.30 TNT. Game two of the Jazz and the Mavericks tonight at 8.30 in Dallas. Obviously no Luka for game two for Dallas, you would assume. And then Denver, Golden State, the late game, 10 o'clock on TNT. Utah, Dallas is on NBA TV. So obviously Celtics next game will be Wednesday, game two. Um, and then obviously, as we mentioned, the... Uh, finalists announced for NBA awards, obviously, uh, Marcus Smart, a f uh, kind of a, I don't want to say favorite, because I don't really want to use that word, but um, it seems like he has a very good chance to win Defensive Player of the Year against Mike Mikhail Bridges and uh, Rudy Gobert for Coach of the Year, uh, Taylor Jenkins of the Grizzlies, Eric Spolster of the Heat, and Monty Williams of the Suns. You know, I think for me, this is a pretty easy decision. You know, I think uh, Jenkins, the job that he's done in Memphis, just the tremendous year that they've had. And I know that, you know, Phoenix and Miami both had great seasons, but to me, it's like Minnesota or Memphis kind of came out of nowhere and had a, had a great regular season. I think like the Heat and the Suns are already very good basketball teams. And I think, you know, Memphis, just the job that Taylor Jenkins did. You know, John Moran obviously is amazing, and Jaron Jackson Jr. had a great year, but they had a lot of bench guys and kind of role players that played really well this season. Dylan Brooks, DeAnthony Melton, um, Desmond Bain, obviously, tremendous uh, years for some of those guys. So I think, my opinion, Jenkins should win Coach of the Year for looking at Defensive Player of the Year. Yes, I'm very biased, but I do think Marcus Smart... Um, has put together a pretty elite defensive season. So I would expect he, him to win. Uh, for most improved, this is a really difficult one. Darius Garland for the Cavs, John Morant for the Grizzlies, and Deontay Murray for the Spurs. All three of them made the All-Star game. You know, this is hard because I think all three of these guys have tremendous cases. Um, but I think I'm going to lean towards Darius Garland. I think I'm just partial to... Uh, the season that the Cavs were able to have, I know that they, you know, stumbled down the stretch, but I think Garland was a huge reason uh, for why the Cavs, you know, ended up being a play-in team. And I think 
Obviously, he made the all-star team. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. So I would pick Garland, but I really wouldn't be surprised if either of the other two guys won as well. For MVP, you know, you got Embiid, you got Jokic, you got Giannis. You know, I think a lot of fancy stats are favoring Jokic to win his uh, second straight MVP. You know, I don't think this is an award that, you know, I think either one of these guys wins. It's not really the wrong guy that wins. You know, this is, I think, one of those rare awards where I think whoever wins, it's not, you know, that whoever wins is is deserving of it. You know, I think me, my opinion, it would be Embiid, um, just how dominant he was for the Sixers. Um, you know, Jokic obviously is outstanding. We all know what he can do, but... I think we have to reward, you know, best seasons. And I think Embiid had the best season out of all three of these guys. But again, you know, this is an award that I think really could go either way. Um, taking a look at Rookie of the Year, you got three great candidates here. Scotty Barnes of the Raptors, Kate Cunningham of the Pistons, and Evan Mobley of the Cavs. You know, I really think you could lean either way with this award, but... You know, part of me is kind of partial to guys that play on, you know, playoff teams, you know, that are a big part of a team, you know, going to the playoffs. So, you know, I would lean toward Barnes or Mobley um, for this award. I think, you know, that Mobley was kind of a big reason why the Cavs were such an elite team for a big, a big portion of the season, you know, until the end when Jared Allen got hurt. Um, but I think he's a big part of why the Cavs were a very good defensive team. Um, maybe he doesn't have the sexiest numbers that, you know, Cunningham or Barnes does, but I think he had the biggest impact, you know, on his team as compared to the other two guys. Um, so I think I'd pick Mobley, but again, wouldn't be surprised if the other two guys win as well for sixth man. You got Tyler Hero, Kevin Love of Cavs, and then Cam Johnson of the Suns. This is an award that I expect to be a runaway. Um, I think Hero has been unbelievable. You know, a great year, um, historic year off the bench. And I think, you know, he started for the Heat at times throughout his career. And I think he's a guy that could start for a bunch of other NBA teams. He probably could start for every other NBA team um, when you look at what he's done. But I think he's a pretty uh, clear winner for sixth man. So... These awards, I think, will be awarded throughout the next few weeks, so it'll be during the playoffs, which is kind of neat. I kind of think that the uh, um, other leagues should do something similar, but obviously that will, the awards will be awarded to the players for the next few weeks. So that'll be exciting to pay attention to. So before we... Actually, no, we'll get right into it. Get right into the... Um, update for the NHL. A bunch of teams have started clinching playoff berths. The Capitals were the latest team to clinch thanks to the Islanders' loss last night to the uh, to the Maple Leafs. Um, Austin Matthews did have to leave the previous game for Toronto. I don't think he played last night, um, but it was whatever game they played the last, whatever the last game that they played, he was hurt. Um, so he's day-to-day, -day, obviously missed the game yesterday. Curious to see how much time he misses uh, the Blues with a dominant win over the Predators yesterday, scoring seven goals in the second period, their ninth straight win. 
Uh, John Gibson getting his first win for the Ducks since March 1st as they beat the uh, Blue Jackets 6-4 last night. So as we take a look at the NHL standings, we'll actually take a quick look at the schedule first. Uh, there's six games on the docket for tonight. Calgary and Chicago at 8. Washington and Colorado at 9. That game is on NHL Network. Ottawa and Seattle at 10. Carolina, Arizona at 10. And then New Jersey, Vegas at 10. And then Dallas and Vancouver at 10.30. So we'll take a quick look at these standings with uh, Carolina and the Rangers now tied for the lead atop the Metro Division with 104 points. Carolina does have the tiebreaker thanks to their regulation wins, which is one more than the Rangers currently. Pittsburgh in third place with 97 points. In the Atlantic, Florida leading the division and leading the conference. I'm pretty sure they have clinched the conference with 114 points. Toronto is in second with 106, followed by Tampa Bay with 100. And then the Bruins and the Capitals with the wild cards. Um, all eight teams have clinched playoff berths in the East. The Bruins are currently in the first wild card position, and Washington in second. Bruins with 97 points. Washington with 94. So, as I mentioned earlier, the Bruins right now would be slotted to play in the Metro playoffs. They would be matched up in a first-round series with Carolina, but obviously that could change with the Rangers even in points with uh, six games left for both of those teams. So, you know, I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if the Bruins get drawn into the Metro you obviously would prefer to not play Carolina in the first round. Um, but I think this could be in more that that could be an easier path for the Bruins to possibly get deeper in the playoffs if they were able to draw the Rangers in the first round. Not that the Rangers are an easy team. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I think you probably would do better against them than you would against, you know, a Florida or a Carolina. So that will be interesting. Keep uh, keep an eye on um, the Bruins are you know three points back of Tampa. I don't expect that that changes, but it is possible if Tampa Bay kind of goes on a slide. Uh, the Bruins, I don't believe the Bruins have games against Florida and Toronto. They don't have another game against Tampa the rest of the season. So taking a look at the Western Conference, four teams have clinched a playoff berth. All three in the Central. Uh, Colorado has clinched the conference with 116 points, St. Louis in second with 102, and Minnesota in third with 101. Um, in the Pacific, Calgary leads the division with 101 points, Edmonton is in second with 94, and then the Kings in third with 90 points. And then the wild card positions, Dallas is in the first position with 91 points. They have a they have an advantage over Nashville with one fewer games played. One fewer game played. Nashville has the same amount of points, but they have played 76 games. Um, so if we're looking at how close Vegas is, they are even with uh, Nashville in terms of games played, but they are four points back. So things are looking pretty dicey for Vegas at the moment. Um, so curious to see how much that changes. Um, obviously, the Pacific Calgary is the only team that has clinched, so obviously that could change um, if, you know, Vegas goes on a run or, you know, Edmonton perhaps falls out of that, falls out of the division, but I would be surprised if that happened. 
but they are pretty close. So it'll be interesting to see how things shake out as the NHL, I believe, has two weeks left in the regular season. Is actually two weeks from today will be the um, might be the start of the playoffs, but I'm not sure about that. We'll obviously check in. So um, obviously, as I mentioned, the Patriots are approaching the beginning of the draft as we jump around to some NFL stuff. So teams are are interviewing and are uh, visiting with certain players. Uh, Malik Willis, who is potentially the top quarterback in this year's draft, um, is visiting the Lions and the Steelers this week. The Patriots, or actually no, I think Patriots start their uh, workouts this week. Um, Kansas City, Green Bay, and Carolina will start theirs today as we are approaching the draft. We are just 11 days away from the start of the draft, so looking forward to that. Obviously, we'll try to figure out a guest for that week. And then uh, speaking of a guest this week, um, I know I'd mentioned we have a marathon-themed guest um, Scott Bushy will be joining the podcast for uh, Guest Friday. Scott is an old friend of mine from uh, Springfield College who has run the marathon in the past, may be running it this year. Obviously, we'll check in with him later this week, but I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Um, so you can be getting ready for that. That will release on Friday. And then before we go, figured it made sense to touch on some um, MLB notes. Uh, Mike Trout is day-to-day after getting it, getting hit by a pitch um, in yesterday's game with his hand. Uh, the Braves are sending Ronald Acuna to uh, AAA to uh, continue his rehab assignment um, as he is returning from a broken leg that was suffered last year. Um, the Blue Jays putting Ryu on the 10-day injured list with a forearm, and then Sonny Gray had to leave the uh, Twins game against the Red Sox yesterday with uh, hamstring tightness, or actually, no, that was on Saturday. Take a quick look around Major League Baseball as the uh, season has gotten underway. The standings, the uh, Mets out of the gate with seven wins in their first 10. So they are 7-3. Then you got the Dodgers and the Giants also off to good starts. Both of those teams are 7-2. Chicago is the only team in the American League that has... uh, you know, is is over is three games over five hundred. They are six and three. Toronto leads the East at six and four, and then the Angels lead the West at six and four. Um, take a look at some teams that have struggled out of the gate. Texas is two and seven after spending the uh, crazy amount of money that they did in the off season. Um, the Reds are also two and eight. They have lost six in a row and eight of their first ten. So I think that will do it for this week's podcast. Really looking forward uh, to my conversation uh, with Scott later this week. It really will be a fun interview. Excited to bring that to you guys. Um, So as always, you can uh, follow the uh, Twitter page, follow the Facebook page uh, for the latest updates, and you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So everyone... Have a good rest of your day. Enjoy Marathon Monday, and we will be back with you later this week.